a successful person, in my opinion, is someone who is able to or is is focused on on enriching the lives of others around them in a meaningful way and and ensuring that they're actually looking after the natural world. Hello, my name is Matthew Sortino and welcome to Moments of Clarity. Right off the top, I would like to thank you so much for tuning in. If you count the three bonus episodes to my tally, today is episode 50. It has been an incredible experience to be able to meet so many great people and have so many of you listening to my podcast. Each and every conversation has added value to my life and I hope it has had a similar effect on yours. Although it is unofficially my 50th podcast episode, the official 50th episode will be a special one. I will be interviewed by a previous guest and now friend, Toby Kent. My guest appearance on my own podcast is not the only reason episode 50 will be unique. It will also be the last episode of Moments of Clarity. Before it is all over though, I have three great guests coming up. Episode 47 with Joseph Mertz, who I'll talk about shortly. Episode 48 with Andrew Haddam, vascular surgeon and all-round great bloke. And episode 49 with Julie Leesk world-renowned professor at the University of Sydney who is an expert in public health and vaccine communication. Over the next few episodes, I'll be revealing information on a new podcast that I am co-hosting with the aforementioned Toby Kent. We are very excited to get this project underway in early 2022, and I hope you'll be there to launch it with us. Okay, enough about that. Now on to today's podcast. In today's episode, I speak to Joseph Mertz. Joseph is a conservationist and entrepreneur based in Auckland, New Zealand. He is the CEO and founder of Mertz Institute, a charity that has a broad mission to ensure continued relevance in a world where the only constant is change. Through the use of holistic data collection, networking and creative solutions, the Institute is tackling a number of things from global insect biomass decline through to resilience issues relating to our species. Joseph is also founder and CEO of Sterning Group, an ethical recruitment company, and is an advisor at Trio, an industry-first HR automation tool. Joseph is also co-founder and director of commercial strategy at BH Pharma. Combined with a wide range of life-changing career and personal choices, Joseph is a wealth of experience and knowledge. Although he obviously has a passion for business, you are more likely to find Joseph hiking the hills of New Zealand with his young family. In today's episode, we talk about Joseph's upbringing and family, his early career and how it changed his moral purpose, the Mertz Institute and some of the key issues it is working through, how data has helped Joseph see through the false narrative that deceived many of us, the importance of mitigation and adaptation in the face of an uncertain future, and much more. My take on our current plight is that we are facing immense challenges from almost every direction. Whether it be geopolitical, environmental or cultural, humanity is at a crossroads and to solve any of these problems, let alone all of them, we need to come to terms with the truth. And sometimes the truth hurts. Our overconsumption and arrogant use of resources has led to a climate crisis, a pollution crisis, an energy crisis and an inequality crisis. Without drastic and rapid action taken by our political, business and cultural leaders and a campaign to bring us all along with them, Joseph's realist some would say pessimistic outlook, may come to pass. So now, without further delay, I bring you Joseph Mertz. Joseph, welcome to Moments of Clarity. Thank you. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I was talking to you on the phone the other day, Joseph, and you mentioned that you were on the side of a mountain (laughs) in New Zealand. And 
I thought we might start there with, you know, what does life look like now for you where you get that opportunity to spend sort of a an afternoon on the side of a mountain with, with your children? Yeah, well, it's actually um, pretty much any day you can catch me on the side of a mountain, believe it or not. I, I guess I'm just... I've just been very fortunate with. Um, I, I started, and this is kind of touches on what we were what we were talking about before, around the the problems with capitalism and the freedom that it, it gives you when you know when you've uh, been been lucky with it. I, I I started my first business when I was about fifteen or sixteen, and and I kind of just have had them ever since, and it's just meant that I could sort of operate the way that I wanted every day and that's changed a lot over the years and now it's um now since I've got two little kids it's very much just about getting out with the kids and and um, spending as much time in nature as possible and my new dog which might make a sound at some point during this he's asleep down here so yeah, we 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 try and get out as much as possible, and I just think it's really important for the kids to um, to really grow, uh, you know, grow their appreciation for the natural world. Really, so yeah. Did you have an opportunity to do that before the age of fifteen? I'm, I guess that that childhood of an outdoors lifestyle. I certainly did. Yeah. So my my we grew up on a on a kind of. It was it was only about three quarters of an acre, but the bottom of it, the bottom of the property, it went down into this um, into some native bush, and there was like a little stream at the bottom of it. And I used to go down eeling there. And um, I must say, if I knew if I knew then what I know now about about long finials, I I don't think I would have caught them. <laughs> but um, I I still remember. I, I I was talking to my wife about it the other day. How you know this my parents having to drag me in every night pretty much because I'd be crawling through Blackberry or something down on the bottom of the property. And, and we were always surrounded by animals and I, we had, we had goats and sheep and chickens and geese and all sorts. And so it was, a, it was a pretty amazing, amazing childhood. I must say in a lot of ways. What did your parents do? What was their occupation? So they were both teachers, actually. My my um, my mother uh, worked with, well, she'd done some child psychology uh, stuff in the Netherlands because they're they're all Dutch. And my father was a music teacher, and um, but my my mother ended up going into into helping um, children with special needs. Yeah, and my dad was it was a bit like they my my mum was a Protestant, my dad was a Catholic, so that was always fun. Um, and, yeah, and my dad, my dad, before he met my mum, he was a monk for six and a half years, so, and he studied theology and uh, philosophy and and then, yeah, he became a music teacher. So he he's a really, they were a really interesting mix to grow up with, that's for sure, and, and add in the fiery Europeanness and... Uh, yeah, we had a pretty, <laughs> pretty eventful childhood. <laughs> wow, that's incredible! What a story to, yeah, especially I mean for both for your mother in the in the uh, the field of like caring for others, and and you know I'm sure that's some, something that's inspired you, but also your father being a monk. You know, what are the chances of someone sort of 
escaping that that and then having or not escaping that you know leaving that to then have a family of their own um and and being such a staunch i guess catholic growing up must have to become a monk and then to marry a protestant you know in the netherlands or from the netherlands is where where it's probably um much more divided than it well at least historically it has been than it, than it would be somewhere like modern day australia or new zealand I know this is going to be about you, Joseph, but how did do you know how much about how that occurred? From my understanding, my mother, my mom came from a really wealthy family, and um, they were traveling on some I don't know much about the particular some ship. And my dad was actually working in the ship as a um, as after he'd left his his monk days. He uh, he was a dishwasher in the ship, and um, they, they didn't know that they were both they, like they didn't know each other at that point. They worked out later that they were both on the ship at the same time. But his his mother ended up working with my my mother's father, and then they were introduced through that relationship. And um, my mum always said that the only reason she ended up giving him a go was because he was just so he was very different he used to always she was a a nurse at the time I think and and he would always go and like all these other men would apparently come and visit her and and leave these notes for her and he would always leave like a different name like Harry Belafonte or something like that had been to see her and um, and I think he was he was just an old man. He really was, <laughs> and that 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 piqued her interest. Um, but it's amazing. I mean, they they they've got a lot of differences, and they've both come from pretty um, you know they've had their challenges for sure. But they're I don't know how many years they've they'll be married now. But my dad's like eighty four or something now, so they've done a pretty good job <laughs> for sure. A business at the age of 15, 16 for you, how did, I couldn't imagine, I'm a teacher myself and I couldn't imagine me doing that at 15 and I can't imagine most of my students doing that either. How, how did that come about? I just was, I remember we had these magazines when we were we were kids and they were, they had like these stories of these kids in the US who'd started little money-making ventures and and I was always fascinated by it and I used to sit by this this little heater we had at home and um and flick through them in the mornings before school and I would just always think about different ways of trying to start businesses and oh yeah there were all sorts all sorts of things that I attempted I used to make rockets and I tried to tried to sell them but nobody wanted my rockets um (laughs) And um, anyway, I ended up sort of at the time when there were no, not a lot of websites up. It was, everyone was still in the yellow pages and all that. I just thought, well, if we start building websites for people, then um, we can probably make some money doing that. So I, um, so I hired, well, I basically just went through the yellow pages and rang people and said, do you want to go, do you want a website? And then I paid these developers to just build, like, basically templates. I mean, we'd really rip the people off, to be honest, but we'd basically um, charge them about two and a half grand for a template, and then I'd charge them these ridiculous rates for hosting. So we'd, we'd mark up the hosting prices massively. And that was basically 
that was basically it. And um, oh, and we did branding as well. And and there were just lots of lots of people wanting to get on on the internet at that point in time. So um, we we're pretty lucky. <laughs> yeah. And and how did it grow grow from there? What was the the next step for you? It grew pretty well, but I kind of. I was so obsessed with money at that point, like in my life. And I was a teenager and I had this girlfriend and I thought I was just amazing. And I think that was, that was kind of the real, the real problem was the fact that I, I don't know. I just, I just thought I was really like, I didn't know any other people my age who started businesses and I, and I was living in an apartment and like in Auckland city in New Zealand with my girlfriend. And I, yeah, I just thought I was, I was pretty cool. And so that sort of, I, I kind of took my foot off the pedal then and thought it'll be sorted from here kind of thing. And then I, I just, I broke up with my girlfriend and, and I started making more money with, with everything that I was doing. And I tried to launch other things and I just, I just worked out really good ways of making lots of money. Yeah. And then I, I realized that it just didn't change anything for me. It was not making me any happier or like beyond a certain point just didn't, didn't impact anything. And by that stage, I'd got a bit older and, um, that was kind of the turning point for me, I think. Yeah. You almost felt you had to go through uh, that option and see what, what, what's this money, you know, what's this story we've been told where you, you make lots of money, you, you've, you're happy, you're, you're partying, you're able to do whatever you want and live the high life and that, that's it. You've, you've made it at, what, in your early 20s. And, and I guess what that turning point, what, was there a moment you remember or a, or a series of events or anything that, that made you realise that that wasn't for you? Yeah, I was really obsessed with Richard Branson and I used to read, you know, the Virgin Business Guides and all those books and all that sort of stuff. And I just, I just sort of lost the interest and I just kept thinking, well, what's going to happen? Like, I'll just get more money. Like, I'll just get more money and more money and more money and that doesn't, you know... It, uh, yeah, I just sort of played it out a bit further and I just couldn't, I couldn't see myself. Like I, I kind of, I don't know, I think it's probably the influence from my dad as well, having sort of, I, I needed more depth to what I was doing. Um, and we were always raised asking big questions all the time. So um, I just couldn't, I, I wasn't, I wasn't happy doing that and I needed more meaning in what I was doing really. Yeah, so that search for meaning, I guess, that purpose, I think it's, I think most people have realised that it is super important now, but it seems that often it is ignored in our in our stories um, in, in the way that we're not necessarily brought up, but the way that society expects us to act. I, as a teacher myself, I even talk to students that talk about, well, you know, I do this to get a job to make money. There's very mm. little discussion with um, students that are entering the workforce or further study about the purpose and the meaning. Now, I mean, there are some. There are many that want to do something but say, well, I love this but it might not get land me a job or I can't make enough money from that so I'm not going to bother. Mm. And it seems like somehow our society has uh, forgotten that, you know, money was supposed to be the the token of value to society and, and we exchange things based on that value, but it's almost 
the opposite now, that w- everything is geared towards just getting that token without the purpose and without the meaning. So, yeah, you, you figured that out. Did you did you figure that out straight away and, and know what you wanted to do or did you have to explore and, you know, find yourself in a way before before venturing to the next step? Yeah, no, I really had to explore. Like I I kind of, I knew that something didn't align with me and I, I tried to sort of create, then, then it became all about building meaningful businesses and businesses with purpose. And then through that, I sort of played that out further and, and discovered that it was just the whole concept was wrong. You know, I, I, even when you talk about getting people into really great work-life balances and all that sort of thing, that's not, you know, we've got to strip it back and we've got to remember that we are primates. And I think that's the big thing that's missing. And, and I, I don't know how much, I mean, some of my advisors in the Institute would probably give me really good reasons on why that's happened, um, why we've forgotten that. But, um, and it probably has a lot to do with um, religious influence and things like that. But yeah, I just think that there there are some real fundamentals that we that we've lost sight of, and and it's really dangerous for us to be in that place. And so I I find it very very difficult to push toward anything in that uh, direction anymore. And I realize, like one of my advisors will always remind me she's a psychologist, and she will always tell me that I'm in a place of privilege, and that's the only reason I can do that. And it's true, and I and I recognize that a hundred percent. Not that my life doesn't have challenges, like I, I, of course I do, but it would be very different if, you know, we couldn't pay bills or whatever and I had to go and I, I just had no choice. But it's, it's really sad to me that people are, that people are in that position. And, and I think, and I, and I, rather than kind of skirt around the outside of trying to subtly shift capitalism i'm i really want to just spend my life going straight for the jugular and seeing if we can actually flip this somehow Uh, yeah what were those businesses as you went along that created not only i guess money but actually had meaning for you and what was the evolution until i guess today with with the institute and and yeah and, and even if you could go into what you're doing currently as well yeah, absolutely. Um, so they started with um, a, a, a recruitment group called Sterning, which I still I still own. Um, and the idea was to, after I'd finished up with everything in New Zealand, I had I had basically no money left, and I decided to move to Australia to chase this girl that I liked, who is now my wife. Um, <laughs> And um, it did. <laughs> and I ended up actually living in a in a laundry in a part of Australia called Cabramatta, which um, I'm not sure whether you're familiar with Cabramatta, but I I leased someone's laundry because that was all I could afford. And this yellow slime used to ooze out of the walls every morning. I don't know what what was going on there, but. It was not, it was kind of one of those moments where I thought, how have I allowed myself to get into this position? And so I thought, all right, I need to start another business. But before I was going to do that, I had to, um, I, I needed some way of making some money. And my brother said to me, why don't you try recruitment? He said, oh, it can't be, it can't be that hard. I know some people who do it. And I thought, all right, we'll, we'll give this a go. And so these 
this poor recruitment company gave me a shot and I was terrible at it because I was just really like I would just tell candidates all the time I didn't think that they you know I would tell them that I didn't think the company was right for them or whatever and and when you've got sales targets that's kind of not um not really the dumb thing in most organizations but anyway I did it I did a stint at this company and then at another one and then I decided to uh, then then I with the managing director of that other company um we started a new business together and um and that was Sterling Group and we launched a different kind of model. The idea was to create a recruitment business that was like really distributive. So um, instead of the the company holding on to a lot of the the revenue from the consultants, we would pay most of it out to the consultants, and we'd only keep a small percentage, and we wouldn't pay them salaries. So we launched with that, and at that point, I was sort of still just trying to get things up and running. So I probably like the, the focus on ethics wasn't, I couldn't kind of do what I really wanted to do, but I still had my fundamental morals, you know, things that I wasn't going to shift on. And so I ended up, there was, there were a few disputes with the, with the lady that I set the organization up with. And, um, a lot of them were, well, they were around a few things. She was very, very sales oriented and I, I really wanted to kind of go a different direction. So I ended up buying her out and then totally shifted the direction of the whole organization into this idea of that it was all built around purpose and it was all about genuine interactions and you know, honesty and integrity and and not just buzzwords, you know, really trying to build an organization from the ground up. And and what a great industry to do it in. I mean, recruitment was I'd had so many bad interactions with other with recruiters and things like that. So uh so that's what that's what we did. And um and we just found uh, more and more kind of like-minded people um who were involved in it. And I, I never had any real growth aspirations for it it wasn't about growing it was about finding the right people and just building a really tight-knit community and what I didn't realize was that there were there were a lot of lessons in it like a lot I mean I kind of thought I knew I knew what I was going to be in for but um but money does things to people and when you give them a lot like a lot of what um, what they're used to earning, um, it can kind of backfire, and and in a lot of cases it did. We had you know we we started having real issues with um, franchisees that were coming in, and we turned it into a franchise at that point because it was kind of the only legal way of doing the structure that we wanted to do. We just had lots of uh, lots of issues with with individual people coming in and and lots of ethical issues and things like that and it was really disheartening to be honest and and I, I I felt like I'd really put my heart on my sleeve with this with this business and really tried so hard to actually do everything right you know like we launched in the middle of a mining boom in australia and we launched with a no mining no oil and gas policy and we were doing like just everything we could to stay as as ethical as possible and then even the people that a lot of the people that were attracted to it were just they you know in a heartbeat they would have just gone and worked with any of these companies if they knew that i would never find out kind of thing so 
it was really quite disappointing. But but over time, and it took it took years, probably five years before we really started finding truly aligned people. And now we've got now we've got an amazing group who are just yeah remarkable and 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 i would you know trust them with my life like i know they would they they really live and breathe the stuff that i'd kind of been preaching back then for the most part <laughs> so um, what 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 was yeah. the um those ethics and those morals that you had and and it seems you know to do with with our climate where did that begin uh, was that in that journey of self discovery after your first business or had you always had a connection to I guess, environmentalism? I'd always been really obsessed with the natural world. Like I, I, I really had. Um, I've got this theory that when you know the facts and, and I'm, I'm implying that there are absolute truths, um, you know, things like what we look at from a scientific perspective and we look at the literature and we go, okay, this is, this is how it's happening or this is a very, very likely how it's happening. I think that if you don't have that, it's just a big narrative. Everything you're just telling yourself is a story all the time that fits with the experiences you've had. And I think I was very much interested in conservation, but I didn't know the facts. I didn't know. And so it was just a big story to me. It was just this big thing that I was telling myself that of where the problems were. And, you know, it's all this the same sort of stuff, like, you know, stop using plastic straws and as if these are the real issues that are out there. And so to answer your question, that kind of just evolved as I, as I sought more, um, more data on these things. And as I got resources again, when I started making money again, I started getting resources to be able to do things like, you know, um, spend time researching and and talk to people that I wanted to or pay companies to do stuff from a data perspective for me or whatever it was. And I just became more and more informed and more and more disillusioned with the ideas I'd kind of had before, if that makes sense. What was that idealistic narrative for you? And what were some of the first data points that, that arrived for you to start challenging that narrative? Um, I think it was, I had very much this idea of like this techno utopia is the, is the, is the word that I'm talking, I mean, is the phrase that I'm, I've, I've coined for this now because it was very much like, oh, we'll, you know, we'll build organ- green organisations that will, that will support, you know, the way we're living and it will be all fine. And I I still thought it was about getting enough money to be able to invest in those sorts of organisations. I I launched the Institute as Mertz Conservation Fund. Um, That's what it was. It was initially called because it was purely meant to be just a thing that I would pour money into organisations with. And then I met different people and different conversations. I remember one time I had the CEO of the Jane Goodall Institute come up to our house in um, the Blue Mountains and we had a really good chat about where I'd kind of got to at that point in my head. And that sort of, those, those I just got lots of people to come and talk and, and we just had lots of really good conversations with smart people and, um, and all of them kind of slowly shifted things, and and sometimes the you know the opposite. They were they were really pushing in the direction that I thought 
was the way to go. But for some reason, that would actually make me see more that it wasn't the way we needed to go. Yeah. Yeah, that, that we, we're often um, played that pathway of living, I guess, almost the same way as we are now, except it's global. So if we have 8 billion people living like we do in the West in our urban environments, um, the consumerism exists that... Uh, just that more, more, more growth, growth, growth attitude can exist in harmony with the planet. And that's that that process that we move away from fossil fuels. We'll have, you know, renewable energy. We, we won't need to dig things out of the ground somehow as much. Or if we do, it's we plant trees in its place or and everything can be the same. And um, we go in our electric cars and up our, you know, rapid speed lifts up to the 100th floor of the tower and and everything will be fine. So that's that techno utopia you're talking about. Um, And it sounds great, but yeah, a a lot of the work that you do and a lot of what I've seen you talk about is that that just is untenable. And that's a shock to, to many people, I'm guessing um, that just want the the way that it is now without the guilt, just give me that right now. But that doesn't seem possible, does it? No, absolutely not. I mean, I, I, um, I think most people would be pretty horrified to to kind of hear some. I, I've said this before, but I think people would be terrified to hear some of the conversations that I have with different scientists that we work with, or um, the future I'm looking at and the future that I see talked about on social media, and the future I'm planning for my children versus what other people are talking about are <laughs> light years apart. Light years apart. You know, a lot of people might think I'm an extremist in that sense, or I, but all of this is backed up with very, very solid science. And it's just not, you know, we, a good example is the whole net zero thing, you know. Um, so, I mean, net zero, one, one of the trustees for the Institute and one of my advisors and someone I've known for quite some time is, um, is a guy called Professor Simon Michaud. And he, he's an associate professor of uh, geometallurgy for the Finnish government and, Basically, Simon and I have been talking for, uh, well, we've been talking about this for quite some time, along with a few others on the advisory board. And I was put in touch with him through one of the guys that, I, that I, I'd been in touch with through the advisory board as well. Um, anyway, Simon had actually, had actually done the numbers, or when I met him, he was about to do the numbers. I can't remember what the timeframes were. But anyway, now he's done the numbers on net zero 2050. And... It's just <laughs> what is necessary for what, what we've got available from a resource perspective, the amount of minerals and, and metals that we need and what's available on Earth, actually on Earth, like physically, if we were to get it all out of the ground, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous to think that we are ever going to achieve some kind of renewable energy transition to the levels of energy uh, that we're using at the moment. We, we basically won the lottery when we discovered oil and we're able to use that. And it's given us an incredible 50 years, 100 years or whatever it is. And we haven't used that in a smart way either. But to go back to the 2050 thing, I mean, there were some numbers done around it um, and they're very simple. You can run these figures at home yourself. Look up if you look up the 2000, 
uh, even 2020 uh, energy consumption globally. Then look at the output of your average nuclear power station or uh, anything like that and look at how many we will need to transition. And, and to give you an idea, between if we built a new nuclear power station between 2018 and 2050 every single day, we would only reach 2018 levels of energy consumption. So that would be no growth, which we've already passed, by the way. Um, or we could build 1,500 new wind turbines covering 750 square kilometres every day between now and, uh, or between 2018 and, and 2050. So, and again, no growth. You know, that's, that's literally just to cover 2018 levels. To give you an idea from an electric vehicle perspective, at the moment, the entire vehicle fleet globally, only 0.5 or 0.7% of that is actually electric. So in order to convert all of that, the amount of even just raw materials like lithium that are required, I think it works out something like you'd use the entire world supply of lithium for 16 years worth of batteries or something like that. And you know, we're kidding ourselves and, and, and governments haven't done these numbers as well. This is the, this is the hilarious part. Like it's, it's not funny, but the, the really shocking part is that after Simon's report came out, he was suddenly getting these, you know, I won't name the international organizations that wanted him to present and have now put him on panels and all of this sort of stuff because no one had done it. Like, we were all so busy trying to get everyone on the 2050 train. We didn't even stop to think, is this the right train for people to be getting on? And I think that really sums up a lot of what's happening globally at the moment. If 2050 and this sort of techno-utopia just isn't possible, let's go back a step. Climate change is real. Joseph, and, and it's happening and it's caused by fossil fuels. So that's like the, you know, the facts that you mentioned earlier, isn't it? You know, what we're doing is causing irreversible damage to this planet and to our life. Well, maybe not the planet. The planet might recover, but human yeah, beings... Yeah, will recover, absolutely. Yeah, but, but human beings won't survive that transition uh, or if it does, it's going to be a shell of its former self. So... So that's the facts. Then 2050 is this way to let's do it. We we care. We, we we're showing we care, but we're just hoping this narrative will get us there. And that you know, all of these rooftop solar, wind turbines, whatever we we want that isn't causing the climate crisis, the the carbon in the atmosphere and methane and all of that, we, we're going to get there. That that's the way we're going to do it. But you're you're suggesting that that's impossible, basically, because of the lack of resources, because of the energy consumption going up as we create a more just world, hopefully, where the developed, you know, the developing nations and will get a piece of the the pie somehow. How do we have a just world and a sustainable world with finite resources? From what you've unpacked there, it's sort of a really it is a scary. Uh, idea, especially with COP26 just finishing and all these promises. What is the one of the solutions or what is one way you see humans going forward and society going forward to ensure that we're not destroying the planet with fossil fuels, but we're also, you know, living? 
Yeah, look, it's a good question. I, I think, look, I want to say something as well. I, I am all for renewables. I think they're fantastic, and I think they're absolutely they're necessary. So if you're wanting to get solar or whatever on your roof, like, go for it. I, I really, but couple it with something else. Couple it with a dramatic reduction in what you're consuming. And because oil is not, there is very strong data to show that oil is depleting rapidly. If you look at a graph of the number of wells that have been created versus the output, you'll see the wells skyrocket up and the output drops still is, and is dropping. It's getting harder and harder to get. Um, and and there's all sorts of other, other things that make like the time frame it takes to get uh, mining operations up and running. There's so many different things that come into play with it you know, that, that complicate matters even more. The the short answer to your question is that's exactly what we're trying to work out at the moment and we're trying to work out the, the best ways moving forward without some sort of collapse. And I genuinely, again, I know some people will think this is um, extreme, but if you do, go out and do the research is what I say. I, I genuinely think that at this point in time we are we are absolutely facing some sort of collapse in in a reasonable uh, I'm not going to put a date on it but it's the it's the only logical result from this point on and what we really need to do is just dramatically and when I say dramatically I mean like government enforced uh, changes in the way that the economy works we need to really change this so that reduction so that there is a huge reduction in the amount of consumption you know that means people need to think about you know uh, maybe it's just they want to go and get a new pair of shoes well what's wrong with their old one can they get it fixed like should they try and fix it themselves and i understand that for people as well who you know rushing around trying to get the kids ready for school they've got to go to work it's probably not it's not a, um, you know, those sorts of things aren't, aren't really that realistic for them. And, and that's where governments have a responsibility to make that realistic because I think it's not just from a climate perspective. I mean, I one of the things that I found most alarming after I started the Institute and I started really digging into the science was just how many directions this is coming at us from. I was talking to different scientists and different specialisms, and they were all telling me the same catastrophic tale in their own area. And complete, well, a lot of them were completely unaware that, that this was happening across all these different disciplines. And I feel like I'm in a very fortunate position because I get to see the, this sort of picture of it all stitched together and... Um, and that narrative I was talking to you about before, there's just really no room for it anymore. I, I, I don't really feel like I can tell myself any stories about it because it's just devastating, <laughs> devastating science coming from all these different directions. And I meet a lot of really optimistic scientists, um, but I'm yet to meet one who, who doesn't seem to have a significant flaw in their plan that another scientist would, you know, say, actually, no, this is really not possible. Or, you know, a, a good example is, uh, I won't name names, but there's a guy at Stanford who's been putting out a lot of, a lot of data on, on, on this transition to renewables and how we can, you know, make that smoothly and all of that. 
um, and just completely ignores the actual resource availability side. And if you talk to talk to him about it, which I have, he says it's just, you know, we just need to recycle more, recycle. Well, recycle from what, 0.5% of the global vehicle fleet? Like, you know, it's um, it's a pretty dire situation. And I just think we need to be careful on how we approach it with people as well so they don't lose they don't lose hope and they don't think that we can't get out of it because I do believe we can, but it's going to take some some real direction from governments to um, to get it happening, in my opinion. People are terrified <laughs> when we when they hear reality, even if it's sort of a simple request about maybe changing lifestyle, you know, something really just just small about, you know, fast fashion or whatever it might be. It, it, it has a devastating effect on people when they realise that. And, and many people, and this is part of the podcast's idea and, and the, my um, want to create this, is that so many of us sort of wish that we were doing something or believe we should be doing something but don't. And governments almost rely on that to not change. Businesses rely on that to not change. And they'll say, well, the economics is there. You know, I'm, people can stop buying Kmart, you know, whatever it might be, but they don't. So why should we stop selling that stuff? It's people want it, you know, market forces. How do we? You, you said, you know, we don't want people to lose hope. How do we inform and educate and get people to understand what's required while also not losing hope and, and just either burying their heads in the sand and continue to do it because it doesn't matter, we're stuffed anyway, or, you know, just completely turning themselves into a dark, going into a dark room and just hiding um, and never coming back out. You know, how do we get this balance where we want to live and thrive and become great people and meet and have communities, get our needs met as well, while also not continuing to drain, I guess, mother nature's you know limited supply of life for us look i think we can absolutely i i I genuinely think that um i've worked with some people who are doing some amazing stuff from a population perspective and i absolutely think it's important um i haven't looked into population as deeply as i should because i've been looking at all these other areas and it's something that i'm i'm in the process of doing um but you know, when I said before this is coming at us from all different directions, I, I don't know whether you're aware, but in the last 50 years, fertility rates globally have been decreasing by over 1% every year. So um, a, a really great little fact is, um, well, not great, but an, an, a good one to remember is that the average 20-something-year-old American girl is now less fertile than her grandmother was at the age of 34 and that's largely due to environmental contaminants. So what, what I'm saying is that it's coming from all different directions and that that's all happening because of the way we're living. It's a human behaviour problem that we've got right now. And it's being driven by largely by the marketing communications industry. I mean, people are buying things they don't even really want because they're told by very, very clever consumer psychologists through advertising campaigns that they do want them or through influencers or whatever it is um, and that they have to have it. And I see this 
all around me all day, every day. And I, I think if I hadn't had that experience I had with my first um, company where we were really delving into the marketing and communication side and all the branding and all that, you know, I probably wouldn't appreciate how much goes into it. And now I look at it from a data perspective. I, I own a stake in a, in, a, in a data and analytics company because I am very interested in how that controls these things. I mean, it is, it is, it is nothing but manipulation that goes on there. I don't even, I, I really think it is so wrong because these companies have data about you and they know things about you that you don't even know about yourself. A CEO of a of a data and analytics company in, in Sydney when I was there once told me that a campaign they ran for one of the big banks there, in the emails they sent out, they had 2,000 different variables. I mean, how do you even get 2,000 variables in an email that was changed based on, you know, who the customer was that it was going to? That is manipulation. That is absolutely manipulating someone. So... We've got these drivers there. So I don't think it's as simple as, you know, people just want to change and so it's going to change. I think they really, those those forces need to stop. Um, forces is a very Star Wars-esque term. But, you know, they really are. They are driving people in a particular direction and it's causing real problems. And we're getting so good at it. We are so good at it. I often think, imagine if the data side was used in conservation or used, but then you, it's just a spend thing again. You know, you've got, you've, you'd have your, your $5 million spend up against billions and billions of dollars of, of spend. You know, Coke's, Coca-Cola's ad spend is like 5.8 billion or something. Like, you know, I, I don't think people should go and live under a rock as much as they feel like they they want to when they find out the realities of these things. I think they should accept what's happening and work to accept it and recognise that it is really depressing and get, go through that. I mean, I was depressed for months and months when I started kind of discovering just how messed up everything was. But we have this amazing planet that self-heals, you know, like we don't have to do all the work. We just need to stop doing the damage. And and there is, I still believe that from a population perspective, even if we do, you know, there are forecasts that populations will reach 9, 10 billion before it sort of plateaus and drops from, from what I've seen. And I genuinely believe that Earth can support that number of people. But I think and this is kind of a, a controversial sort of thing to say, I really genuinely think we need to stop striving for be, for more and for better, for uh, even for better. You know, I, people want to move up the ranks in their companies or they want to, you know, they want to be more or they want to... I just think we need to stop, just stop and just learn to be. And it reminds me of... I, I, I did some work with Indigenous communities in Australia when I was there and... That is, you know, a 65,000-year-old culture. And you know what they're amazing at? They're amazing at just being. They, You can sit there with them and they will, and I, I know this sounds like I'm generalizing, but it, from my experience, this was wholly true. Well, I sat there with many Indigenous people in Australia and 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 they're quite happy to just sit there and not talk like just just sit there and and i mean for anyone in the western 
who's, who's grown up the way we have, it's just uncomfortable and awkward and you'd just be like, this is so bizarre. But they are that content. You know, they've got this, and again, I, I really sound like I'm generalising with this, but it's not, I, I'm not the only one who's noticed this as well. I've got a friend there who's a lecturer in Indigenous studies and he talks, he spent a lot of time a lot of time in remote indigenous communities and it was something he like he highlighted too was just this contentment with you know quite happy to just just be and i really think that's what if we're going to get out of this we need to we need government help to scale everything back and help people to find a way to just be and we need to set progress aside for a little while <laughs> which is not only i mean the indigenous populations around the world are very good at just being as well as uh sort of eastern philosophy and and buddhism and that is i guess the central tenet of it that you know doing and growing and consuming and taking and being this perfect self and more and more and more just doesn't get you anywhere and and you see it in with the opioid epidemic in western nations you see it with rich, famous people taking their lives or having addiction problems or needing an island of sex slaves to to, to be, you know, whatever it might be. Um, not that I'm not going down the conspiracy road, but, you know, <laughs> um, but, you know, that there's, there's things that people just want, 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 and eventually you've got to find that in, in, in an area that just, just doesn't make sense anymore. And by just being, you're talking about, stopping but it doesn't mean we stop striving does it it means that we're 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 looking at success is probably the wrong word but growth of spirit or growth of of your mind or your ability to to connect with others or connect with yourself like what does what what does being it's it's not simply just downing tools and sitting bored there's there's more to it than that isn't there yeah and i'll i'll, I'll highlight that this whole part of the conversation is all very anecdotal from my perspective and it's you know it is just um my experiences and my beliefs on it and i you know I, I i've come to these conclusions based on the data that i've seen in all these different areas so it's not uh and also exploring other options i know lots of people who have these who still have kind of this hybrid techno utopia version of it but i i just think that there's a lot of stuff that they're still missing um so to to get back to your question we're actually running a program in the institute called discover success which is designed to be a space where people can explore what just explore what success even means to them because they're so used to i mean most people just assume if you ask them what's what who's a successful person they'll say jeff bezos or they'll say richard branson or exactly what i used to think you know and are they they have done the amount of you know i was looking the other day just thinking about how just think uh, i just saw the contrast between amazon.com and bezos earthfund.com or dot org and you just think damage being done by one and then an attempt to reverse it in another and it's just I just that, that sort of stuff just blows my mind. It really does. But but anyway, they would look at that, and and most people would would say, you know, that that those are successful people to them. And and I I would challenge that and say that's what society tells you they are successful people. But 
a successful person, in my opinion, is someone who is able to or is is focused on on enriching the lives of others around them in a meaningful way and and ensuring that they're actually looking after the natural world as a like a number one priority. And and I, I actually wrote something on LinkedIn about it today because there there are an estimated four billion species that have evolved on Earth and 99% of them are extinct. 99% of 4 billion species since Earth started 4.5 billion years ago. You know, and, and you think what we should have been doing, our focus from day dot should have been to ensure, uh, you know, ensure that the, the Earth is looked after so that we have our the best chance of using our intellect to ensure that we will continue and we haven't i always say to people we've been building facebook and twitter and going down these rabbit holes that are just they real. i mean you can find value in all sorts of things but value when you compare it to the value of of looking after the earth it's meaningless it's absolutely meaningless yeah so my my the, the program is about finding success for for yourself and i think and I just think people should just explore it because there's no there's no real answer. There's no one answer. I can't tell anyone what success is to them. They they have to. The closest I've got is is that it's something we that kind of that contentment and that fulfillment and in in this in the psychology literature they refer to it as as life satisfaction. And in that space, the closest I've got is that. It's something that that happens every day. Success is going to the supermarket and finding the things that you needed or picking up your kids from school. Like it's or having a really happy day with your family. Like I really think we need to strip it back to these things that we have small events every single, just what most people would classify as totally mundane and what we're really brushing over all the time on our way to this other version of success. I really think that is where the the, the joy is and the money is in, in celebrating those things and, and learning to recognise them and find them. And that's about as far as I've got with it anyway. <laughs> We've got a limited amount of attention and humans, I'd say, are probably quite poor at deciding where to pay attention in the present moment. Like we're great at wishing things and looking at the future in an idealistic manner or saying what we would have done in the past or even almost making the past out like it had to happen that way for me to get to where I am today, almost justifying what we've done. But we're quite poor. And I think when I asked you earlier what's the solution to this if 2050 is not the way and climate change is happening due to us, you didn't say throw your plastic straws out or you didn't give us a solution for someone to do tomorrow. You said it, it's got to be it's got to be human change, and um, I actually really like that because I'm always going on about this with with friends and and people I talk to and on this podcast about there's two elements of change we need to make and one is internal and one is external. And I think the external change is almost pointless unless we change what's within. 
And that means that we accept, I guess, the false narratives that we've put upon ourselves, the the conditioning that we've got, the the barriers and defenses we've got up, the self-talk and the justifying and the and and the, even with me saying, oh look, I would, you know, be better with my attention if I, you know, I delete my apps and stuff. I try my best, but I haven't bought the old, an old Nokia from twenty years ago or whatever it might be. I, you know, there's there's so many actions we can take, but it takes our whole mindset to shift. And as you said, what success means, what what are we doing with our att- attention? What do we need? Like, what do we actually need? Why are we afraid? to actually follow our dream. You know, I, uh, if only everyone would do it, I would get a small small house and live, you know, in a more community-minded place and I'd take public transport or whatever it might be, those incremental changes. But but we don't do it. We we still, you know, wish or we make minute changes and it and it's it takes really brave people and really sort of exceptional exceptions to the rule that actually... Um, change their lives in, in entirely for the better once they see the data once they experience something you know it's all well there's lots of people that are ignorant to this but those people that like i put myself probably in this area that have seen something have noticed something that is wrong yet continues to fight what actually needs to happen and and it's got to do with that within and and often i end up projecting about what's going on at the outside like you know the problem is there there and there and then I breathe and I take some time and I realize the problem is is within me because if I'm not going to change A, B, and C, why would the government, why would Kmart, why would, you know, whoever, why, why do I expect them to do it when I'm not willing? So if everyone could do that somehow at the same time and, you know, arm in arm do it somehow, we could get there to where we need to be probably quite, quite easily, but we're often misguided or misleading ourselves as to how it can happen um so that's something i noticed through through what you were talking about but yeah what do you have to say about that idea i think it really lines up with what you and i talked about briefly before the call which was i think people are trapped in capitalism like they they can't even if they really want to change they have these these needs unless you do really well in damaging the planet you are not in a place to get the space that you require to be able to explore these things and my objective was to make was to try and do really well without destroying the planet and prove that that was possible and look i i think i've done a pretty good job of it to be honest but i'm not I, I'm not excessive about what I need either. You know, I'm, I just need the space to be able to look at things and I'm quite happy with that. That's where I think governments have a real responsibility to, to allow people to have that space. I'm a big believer in the fact that, that there can be really huge social, sudden social shifts where, you know, one of the one of the guys on on our advisory board is Will Stephan, who's a um, a professor uh, of Earth System Science at ANU, and he's an amazing scientist. And he, I remember one of the first times Will and I spoke, and I was talking to him about the direction that I wanted to go with the institute, and he's all about climate tipping points, like 
and and he said to me, Joseph, we really need some kind of social tipping point. And and that's exactly it. We do. We need something that's going to start a cascade of things in the right direction. And I think that's only going to be possible when people can can have the the space to explore. And that at the moment is just still a money. It's just a money thing. Like it's just, it's so horribly, I mean, it's just so sad to think that all of this is happening because people need to pay their bills. Uh, This whole thing that we've created, it's all of our own doing. You know, we've literally just created this concept and now we work for it and we might all die for it. (laughs) Um, Mm. People yeah. seem so unwilling, though, to give up their their patch or give up. And I, I know it is a capitalistic idea. It's com- competition is basically the what it's all about. So, if you give something to a movement that is looking to improve something, whether it's so, you know justice of some description, environmental, social, you know inequality, whatever it might be, there are so many people against it. It's you know the idea of bailing out an impoverished nation of their debt, for example, um, so they don't have to constantly do, you know, negative environmental acts to try to pay that back, people would say they shouldn't be cutting down that forest or mining that thing or killing that animal, but then they're also unwilling to release them from debt because it's using our foreign aid or whatever it might be. I'm I'm just using some uh, hypotheticals here. So that's one element with our inability to change if we're giving up often, but also that the major changes that have seemed to happen in history, you know, moving from farms to cities, the, the great revolutions and, and social movements of our time all seem to be based on that your life will be better and you'll have more. How do we somehow get that same pressure and that same movement to occur saying that you need to actually have less, like what is the incentive for people to, to do that? And, and you mentioned a social shift, but is there a way before death stares us in the face to do that? Is there, is there some way that you've, that you've pictured of this happening? Well, I think, I think we've got, and I always say this, we've got this huge natural advantage of the fact that it will actually make people happier. We know that more beyond a certain point doesn't, impact people's happiness we've there's plenty of science to back that up you know so we know that what we're pushing for and this idea that you'll be happier and you'll be more fulfilled and you'll be whatever when you achieve this when you buy a new car and you buy you know a better house and all of this we know that's that's flawed like it only goes so far and there's far more fulfillment to be found in this other direction. So I really feel like that's actually a huge opportunity there that's just sitting there waiting for us to to capitalise off it. But I think there are a lot of things that are in our favour. The other thing that I think we need to really do is put, again, this whole primate thing, put, put things back into perspective and... Um, because at the moment we're just driving further, we're just bringing people more and more down these rabbit holes and and taking them further and further away from what really matters. I mean, if this, the COVID is a very good example of 
just how remarkable the change that governments can actually um, bring about if they really put their minds to it. You know, you've got people taking all around the world, the vast majority of people just trusting governments with with um, with vaccines that haven't gone through the normal process from a time from a time frame perspective they haven't gone through what was you know what we've normally done yet how many people have done them the governments have said stay home don't go and how few people have disobeyed how few people have um, been so few people who have been you know, really arrested for it, protesting. So governments are capable of, COVID has shown us, if there was any doubt, that governments are capable of really bringing about change on and, and also shifting people's mindsets and making them think that things are acceptable or, you know, if the government's behind it and they really go behind it, I genuinely think that people will follow. And... The other part to this is just how long we've actually been around. Uh, so this is kind of what I was saying about the perspective thing, you know, the primate side of things. Um, on the Institute website, we've got a, a thing called the Age of Earth, and you can actually sit there and you can see pixel by pixel. So every pixel represents a 1,000 years. You can see how long Homo sapiens have been around compared to the planet. And if you then think about how long this has been around this this growth thing it, it's it's not long it's not long at all we've had a wonderful 80 or 100 years or whatever it's been and it's the same with you know i often think about about the holocaust 80 it was 80 years ago my father was alive when one crazy man managed to bring a whole lot of people behind him and bring about the murder of six million Jews and overall deaths of what 30 million people or something so you know I think we're just really far down this rabbit hole of we've got this sorted out and we're you know we're we're so clever and and technology is the solution and we just need to pull ourselves back and go hang on a second um no we haven't (laughs) Mm. and radical change is necessary that's my opinion anyway. And the scary thing about that, you, you mentioned how, I guess, governments can unify to do good or to do something that is necessary or seen as necessary, like, you know, a pandemic hits and, and you know, we act upon it or what we could do in with climate, you know, what could happen if governments decide to act. But then you also mentioned the Holocaust. What What can happen... If you want to commit genocide, what can happen if, you know, the, the shock and the horror? And this is why, you know, I'm I'm really someone that <laughs> we've mentioned the word your institute, but I'm I'm someone that um, believes in the power of institutions, that be, believes in the power of government, that believes in the power of checks and balances and community to bring about wholesale change rather than individual competitive desire, I guess, or the libertarian sort of ideal thought. I think. For me personally, at least I say to myself, my narrative is that this government idea works. But then I also think that it does take individual change, individual want and desire to to hold true to value so that we can't be manipulated when the bad guys do come along, you know, once in a generation or whatever it might be. We, we've got to be wary of powerful 
beasts and and you mentioned the advertising world as that pair i think that they're the most dangerous people in the world right now or companies mm. in the world that the advertisers the yeah. marketers the manipulators the data collectors yeah. and and that's even in australia i don't know the same in in new zealand but there's a betting ad three or four times per commercial break not that i watch too much cv but you know you, you try to watch a bit of a sport you like and mm. every single moment where they can get a betting agency to to do it it's there and it's it's man- manipulating, I guess, children to normalise sport is betting, you know. Mm. That is an example of we can make so much money here. We can talk about people having choice here and say, you know, you can't take this away. Governments say, well, it's we get a lot of tax, you know, from it. And then um, organisations say, well, we can't ban this from our channel because we're making so much money off this. There's There's all these things people are unwilling to do along the way to stop these negative influences infiltrating society. Yeah, and I just wonder, I just wonder how we can, you know, hold fast to our values and, and value set to to say no matter the benefit, we can't go down this pathway. And I almost think the same's happening with cryptocurrency and, you know, a lot of Friends of mine and people I know are obsessed with, you know, day trading and doing all of that with it. And they understand that it might not really have much value. It may end up, you know, just more power in the hands of people with with more money and more privilege, you know. But I can make two grand tomorrow potentially. If this thing goes up and I sell, you know, I've got money. And so I'm willing to throw away my value set in a way. I don't care if this is negative or potentially mm. negative. I just want to be the person that's first on the next moneymaker. And 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 that depresses me about human nature. I don't know. I I genuinely, you know, I went through a really long period of time when I first started this thinking, is humanity worth saving? Like that was the, I, I basically got back to that point of if I really am going to have a go at this, like, do I truly believe in what I'm doing? Like, do I truly believe that humanity is worth saving? Not in some deluded idea that I'm going to save humanity, but just do I believe in what I'm doing? Like what I what I'm about to dedicate my life to, basically. And for a long, long time, I just couldn't think of a reason why it was. But when you start thinking about the bigger, the bigger questions, the, the fact that we still even though so many millions of people die all the time and you're going to die and I'm going to die and my children are going to die and my dog Otis is going to die. Um, and yet we still have absolutely no idea where they go. But when you, when you start thinking about that, the, the fact that we, we don't actually, we don't know the answer to that. We actually, we don't know. And what happens? Do we just cease to exist? So when when you look at that, you realize that there's sort of just this this wonder and existence on its own. Like there's something, it's just too interesting to throw away. And and that's the reason why I think it is worth saving. Not because I think humans are a wonderful species that are all all good and all of that. I just think it's all too interesting to let it go. But I'm I'm really concerned and again I, I i just want to kind of bring it back again to these fundamental things because 
I'm really concerned that we are setting ourselves, or we already have set ourselves up for, in my opinion, even if we worked every day, all day, to fight extinction of Homo sapiens, I, I still don't think we'd win. I, like, I, I get that's probably why people are interested in going to other planets and all that sort of thing, but I think it's inevitable. I, I just, I do. But it doesn't have to be now, and I think we have, you know, there's, there's so many simple things that we need to start fixing. Like, the knowledge thing is another thing. I didn't mention that before, but, you know, this is something that I think people should really genuinely think about. Again, strip it back to the fact that they're primates and they go to a supermarket that holds a day and a half worth of food and that's it. And it's completely reliant on oil to get more food to them. Now, do they have the knowledge? Do they have the skills? Do they, even their grandparents or their great grandparents would have had the knowledge and the skills to keep themselves alive? Do they? Do, do you? Does your family? Do, does anyone listening here? I certainly am not there yet. And we've kind of found this false sense of security in the, in the fact that this is also normal the way we've been living when it is so incredibly dangerous. The knowledge that you don't have about keeping yourself alive as a primate or finding food or, you know, what's how do I find safe water to drink? Because right now and for the foreseeable future, you think you can just turn on your tap and, you know, it'll be fine. But if that stopped, you don't hold that knowledge anymore. It's not even in a book that's in your house, most likely. Most people don't even, you know, back in the day, that would have been in a book somewhere. And now it's stored in a data center that you need electricity to access. So, you know, it's not even about, oh, I'll go and get the book and I'll learn what to do. It's shit, I actually can't. There is no way I can get this this knowledge. And it's not a it's not a matter of going and asking an elder or someone else who, you know, used to hold that knowledge. So that's something I'm I'm really, really concerned about too. And I think, you know, these are the sorts of questions that we or these are the sorts of things that we need to be looking at if we if we want to persevere. Um, because otherwise if we keep making mistakes like this and we keep just keep expecting that the electricity will keep running and the you know and it's all just going to stay stay running all this technology is going to be fine and we don't need any other you know we don't need to hold these skills we won't you know it won't take long for for things to get out of hand if something goes wrong yeah i see that as like a, a personal resilience or a, a social resilience that is required in terms of an ability to live the mercy institute we sort of skipped a bit um, earlier on, but, you know, what was its original purpose? How has it progressed? And then I want to get into your personal journey into resilience, I guess, and, and, and knowledge and what you're doing. But your outward message, you know, you, you, you were doing well in recruitment and still continue that, and then you've, I guess, put this space in where you've decided you've, you can try to build knowledge and, and ability to save humanity in a way and be one of the the many people moving towards that because it's worth doing. How do you see that working with the Institute? 
Yeah. Um, well, look, I mean, I've I've hung on to the recruitment group purely because, I, I mean, I haven't recruited for I don't even know how long it's been. I, I never recruited in that organisation myself. So, I yeah, I've hung on to it because I, 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 I feel like I owe it to the people in the organisation who have given me so much to try and build it and supported the whole thing through it and... Yeah, and I'll make sure that no matter what happens that they're looked after, I really will because, I, you know, they've, they've given me a lot of support and I've tried to support them as much as I could. So I think all of them know very much that, you know, that that's not going to be me forever um, and, I'm, and I'm not going to be involved in that forever. Um, and the same with the other organisations that we've got. I've been pretty transparent with everyone that the Institute is what, I want to spend my life doing and I intend to. Yeah, so um, so it really is to focus. I've, I've, the only thing I've ever really been good at in my life is finding holes in things. Like I can just, I'm just good at seeing problems and holes and flaws and plans and, and, and that's kind of, I don't know why, I've always been able to do that and I've always been able to predict predict is a, is a big word, but I've always had a level of insight into what was likely, what was a likely outcome in a situation. And I, I feel like with the Institute, I can help with that. And my, I, I want to focus on, on the really difficult topics that no one's talking about on the, well, that very few people are talking about. Um, and on the really uncomfortable questions that we, you know, there's the, the really, in my opinion, obvious ones, but ones that people just, you know, I, I mean, I, I mentioned some of this stuff to people and they'll, some of them have really visceral reactions to it, you know, because it's not, it's not what you want to hear. So I, I see the focus of the Institute always being in that area always being about kind of having these conversations or, or creating spaces to explore the issues that we're facing uh, as a species and the natural world facing. And I see that basically as one anyway, because, you know, we really need a far more holistic view when it comes to that. And also to explore solutions, you know, potential solutions on these things and realistic ones and not have an agenda. I, I genuinely hope that I am proven wrong with all of this and and that we're all proven wrong. I, I really, you know, that all of the, the people that I, I, I've been working with on this are, yeah, and I think, and I know they, well, I know they all hope the same. I spoke to a, an engineer today who told me that he just sometimes feels like curling up on a, in a ball and in a dark room because of just just what he knows about what's going on. And and I think there's, you know, there are a lot of people like that and, and they would love nothing more than to be proven wrong. But until, until it is proven wrong, I intend to keep trying to sort of dig to the, the truth. <laughs> By looking at this and wanting to be proven wrong and not having an agenda should show everyone that this is real, you know, that you know, the, the denialists have an agenda that's clear. You know, they want to keep selling their fossil fuels or, you know, keep whatever it is alive that they, the power that they've got um, 
and there are so many people out there that are fighting really for big forces and, and could make a lot of money by changing their mind and lying about something, you know, if, if that's what it was all about. So, yeah, intention, agendas, bias, all of that has to be looked at. Um, yeah, anyway, what I, what I wanted to, to move on to now, we've talked a lot about, I guess, where we're at as a society, as a planet and the work that you're doing, but what are you personally doing at the moment and what is your with children, with your dog, with your family, with with hope and love and everything that you've got, what is what is it that you're doing to try to build that resilience within you and your family and where are you hoping to get in the near future? First off, I, just quickly on, on what you just said before, if I can just add one thing. The climate situation is something that's got a lot of coverage at the moment and it certainly has the with things like tipping points, has the ability to wreak absolute havoc. But there are a number of areas that this is very, very dire in as well. And 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 I think it because it's all linked, it really is, you know, um, and I think we, we don't realise quite how linked it all is. So I just wanted to add that because I think that's really, for people who are listening, I think it's really valuable for them to realise that if they if they don't already, that the climate situation is is one thing, and mm. you know I could list another whole lot of them, and I think that's important to remember. Anyway, oh, um, oh well, on, on that I know we want to move to the next bit, but you, <laughs> you did um, just very quickly. It, you mentioned population earlier. What, what would be a couple of others? I, like, I think food security, nu- nuclear war, um, war in general, you know, uh, power structures, all of this matters. But so what are the areas that you sort of put in that same category as our climate crisis? Um, so environmental contaminants would be a massive one for me, I think, and, and the repercussions that they have like I talked about, even fertility rates, things like that. Fertility rates is another another one. Um, I think it's kind of hard to prioritise them and also because they are so interlinked. I think that the, like I said, the knowledge thing, I think that's a, 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 a really big threat right now as far as threats go. I think polit- politically there are some really concerning things happening uh which would be a whole other two-hour conversation but things that we like real alarm bells there that people are not paying too much attention to that the whole the whole division thing how much we're you know we're, we're chopping up society into these groups of people and you just automatically just thrown into one you know um, yeah, but I mean, I guess they're kind of smaller parts of, of um, larger kind of issues. But I think from the climate side, there are a number of things sort of tied to that that are also like thawing of permafrost. Like I think there's a lot of risk. Well, there, there will be from things like pathogens that we haven't been exposed to before. Yeah, I the sea level rise thing is an interesting one. I'm kind of yeah, I don't. I I don't probably know enough about that area, um, but I. It's again. It's kind of all so interconnected. And and what I was getting at before 
was that if you talk to ecotoxicologists or if you talk to ecologists or if you talk to immunologists, anyologists really, um, <laughs> you'll hear this same sort of very concerning trend. So I think while there are a couple that sort of stand out for me and they are all sort of interlinked, I just think this the idea of grouping it into climate change is a dangerous one because I think we've run the risk of, again, become, going down kind of a rabbit hole, if that makes sense. So getting back to you, just very quickly before I let you go, um, you know, what what is it that you're doing to keep yourself sane, to keep your family safe, you know, now and in the long term, you know, with all of this, if you are proven correct, sadly, what what, what are the steps that you're taking now? I, I kind of take a, a precautionary principle approach with this. I, I really think that even if there's a very small chance of this happening, which I don't think there's a small chance, I think there's actually a pretty significant chance, which you probably will have realised, I, I mean, discovered from, <laughs> from my opinions on this, but even if there's a small chance for the severity of what's what that would mean, we need to take all precautions necessary and uh, and we need to kind of give it the, the right amount of energy and effort. And, you know, again, it might sound very extreme, but I'm, I'm really focusing on those, on those kind of, I've got two young kids. They're my main priority. They really are. And so I feel a real obligation to ensure that I have that knowledge that I haven't spent a lot of time developing or learning on, and, and skills that I haven't spent a lot of time developing, but I have those for them because I, I genuinely think that that's going to be necessary. And that's meant things like, I mean, I'm a vegetarian, but I have been going out hunting and things like that. I, I Again, I know this probably sounds very extreme, but if we put it into perspective and we look at how rapidly things can decline at any one time and how how fragile everything is that we're relying on from a from a, a technology perspective that they're not extreme things to be doing i think they're very sensible things to be doing and i would encourage other people to do them we have also a, a, a lot of books we get a lot of uh, data and and print it and ensure we've got, you know, information. And I don't believe that people can do this all on their own either. I think you should find other people who uh, who are interested in certain things and, um, you know, help them explore those areas. I'm really just looking very much from an... There are things that I'm doing from a mitigation perspective, but... Um, the vast majority of what I'm doing personally is from an adaptation perspective is probably the best way of putting it. Yeah, so the the, the word that comes to, to mind for me is prepper. And I spoke to uh, Shani Graham, who's a, who's a, who always rejected that term. She's a, a an amazing woman from Fremantle WA and she made I'd reject it too, to be honest. I hey, really yeah. don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> she rejected that term but then was on a panel about preppers and sort of denying that she was and then she found that she almost was one because <laughs> she was prepping for something. You know, she was yeah. building resilience and building knowledge and building – she's, you know, um, got herself a, a bit of land where she's got a community 
group that lives there and there's people sort of changing and learning. You know, they've got the goats and basically off-grid teaching people who then go off to teach others uh, how to survive, mm. I guess, in a world that where the supermarket is closed, where the, where the trucks stop. And eventually the cans of food run out, you know, that you've yeah. stocked up in your basement and whatever. You know, you need to learn how to re to, to live. Um, yeah. And how do you do that? So, yeah, so I guess in a way, without wanting to use the term prepper, like building that resilience and that knowledge, have you found that it's actually liberating and, and you feel more confident going forward in your life with all this knowledge? Um, look, I, I don't, I, I mean, I kind of, I'm not sure from an evolutionary perspective why my wife chose me, um, but I don't think it was for my muscular physique or my, um, you know, my wild ways. For, for people who haven't physically seen me, I'm six foot six, I've got Crohn's disease, I weigh 67 kilos and so I'm not you know your average adventurer but I've been able to get through my life with my with being reasonably smart and I kind of am relying on that with this I'm I so to answer your question it hasn't really been liberating for me I don't I you know I think if I was physically better at this stuff then that would be great but and it probably would be more, more, um, more liberating. But um, yeah, it's been look, and uh, you know about the preface thing. I don't. I guess that's that's to that same. You know, I I immediately jump to this. You know, nobody likes to be associated with that. But again, that's just another really good example of how we're just creating these these sections of society and labeling them and putting them in a. Everybody immediately thinks of some some camo American guy digging holes with submachine guns and his family. And I guess the way I see it is is as as sensible. I, I see it as as and I and I the way I differentiate it from that kind of stereotypical idea of preppers, which the only reason I disagree with their idea is that their idea is very, well, from what I've read about it, and I've read quite a bit about it, their idea is very sort of military-focused. It's all very um, based around, as you say, things like cans of food and that sort of thing. I, I'm i much more interested in working out a... Um, looking at Indigenous communities and the way that they, the way that they operated and well, some of them still operate and taking taking lessons from from that joseph if people want to get in contact with you or find out more about you where can they find that um i'm on i'm on linkedin i'm pretty active on linkedin um and uh, otherwise they can go to mertz institute and even though it sounds like it's got a t in it it doesn't it's a german German name, so it's merzinstitute.org, um, and there's this information there. We've only got one program live on the site, but there's a bunch of really interesting ones in development, including one called Sapiens, which is talking all about this resilient stuff. And um, yeah, so that should be an, an exciting one when that launches. 
And my final question for you, which I ask on every episode of the podcast, is have you had a moment of clarity recently that you'd like to share with us today? That's a that's a that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> I I have had a few actually. I think the biggest moment of clarity I've had recently was to do with that success side of things because it's something that we've kind of been exploring these ideas of success and to do with the the facilitator for that, which is that, that advisor, Noah, Noah Rain. She was talking about how the, the, the way that you, you will work out, you'll never find a definition of success as such. It will be kind of a, you'll work out where it is more likely to sit for you at any given time because it's something that happens all the time and that the best thing to do if you're trying to find it is or you want fulfillment or you want life satisfaction or you want is to learn to flex this muscle of almost discernment to identify the things that you associate with being successful or unsuccessful, yeah, which you can do through identifying people in your life that you think are successful or unsuccessful um, and looking at what it is in those people that you're, you know, that leads you to those beliefs. They're probably not doing any justice to what she's, what she's, uh, the, the, the clarity that she provided me with, but yeah, it means something to me. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for that. And I know it is a, a 11 p.m. I think your time. So thank you for bearing with me. It's um, it's it's been a long conversation, but one that I think is really valuable. So I appreciate your time, your knowledge, and the work that you're doing. And yeah, thank you for joining me, and thank you for everything you're doing. Oh, thank you, and thanks for having me, Matthew. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed the conversation today, please subscribe, share with your friends and family, and leave a review. If you would like to contact me, provide feedback, or have access to someone you believe would be a great guest on the podcast, you can contact me on Instagram or Facebook at Moments of Clarity Podcast or on Twitter at BarneyMOC. You can also email me on Moments of Clarity Podcast at gmail.com. Once again, thank you for joining me on Moments of Clarity.